Hey, Dr. Mike here. You know, if you want to live forever-ish, you have to know what's in and out. Stay tuned to find out. You're listening to Live Forever-ish, a show dedicated to helping you live just a little longer. Here's your host, Dr. Mike and Dr. Crystal Gosser. All right, welcome to Live Forever-ish. So this is one of our favorite shows. We do this at the first Monday of every month where we talk about the things you want to do and something you don't want to do to live forever-ish. Yes. Right, Dr. Crystal? That's right. <laughs> you know, and again, living forever-ish, strong, long, vibrant lives, right? Something like that, Dr. Crystal. Yes. <laughs> I think you, you covered it all. Just Good. having vitality in your uh, elder years. Yeah. Listen, we all want that, right? I mean, we want to be able to do the stuff we want to do for a long time. So we break this show up into three ends, the things you want to do. These are the things that are in if you want to live forever-ish. And then one thing that's an out. That's the thing yeah. you don't want to do. That's the thing you want to avoid. So let's start with in number one, and this could be my favorite in we have ever talked about since doing this, and it's about petting your dog. What's going yes. on here, Dr. Crystal? Well, it's more than just about petting your dog. Uh, as we will explore, uh, we're highlighting a study that was published uh, in October, just last month, October yeah. 5th. Uh, in the journal uh, Plus One, and they were identifying contact with a dog. So not just petting Dr. Mike, looking at a dog, sitting oh. next to a dog, yeah. and petting. Yeah. And the what about kisses on the nose? <laughs> I'm sure that's just taking it to the next level. It's, I'm okay, sure it's on. even better. <laughs> yeah, so this study was titled Effects of Contact with the Dog, on prefrontal brain activity, a controlled trial. I mean, basically the prefrontal brain activity, that's, that's, that's straight cognition, that's executive function. I mean, that's your big brain area basically, right? Yes, and it's also associated with uh, social engagement as well. Um, and so it's nice that these researchers in, uh, took place in Switzerland. The researchers in Switzerland decided to take a closer look at the effects of animals in this particular case, dogs. And I do want to just backtrack, Dr. Mike, because I know you're partial no. towards no, dogs. No, you're not. You cannot add other animals to the study. That's not what I am did. adding other animals uh, <laughs> to the general idea that therapy uh, animals have been shown to support uh, the boost of endorphins that helps with pain lower blood pressure, anxiety. Uh, so it's not just dogs, Dr. Okay. Mike. Uh, that's fine. I'll give you that. So interesting. So this was, I mean, this is a small little study, right? It's nothing, I mean, I mean I, more research is definitely needed, but it makes sense to me that this, that this plays out and works. 19 men and women, they went through six sessions, right? Three were about imaging and scanning. And I think then, um, why they were petting a dog, why, why they were interacting. And then they went through three sessions, right? Where it wasn't, it, it was like they replaced the dog with a stuffed animal. So it was like three sessions of with the dog, three sessions with a stuffed animal. Is that, am I getting that right? Yes, that's right. So what did they find out? 
Well, they found out that, uh, and just to go back, there was imaging with both groups, the, the, the groups with the actual dog, as well as the groups who were viewing the stuffed animal or uh, sitting next to the stuffed animal or even petting the stuffed animal. And by the way, the stuffed animal was filled with a warm water bottle so that it was just to try to emulate the temperature difference. (laughs) Okay, let me me backtrack because when I was reading this, Dr. Crystal, I was thinking this was a crossover study. So that's not what they did here. It was a straight, half of the 19 people were with the real dog, the other half with the warm bottle and the stuffed dog. Or here I'm actually reading it was a stuffed lion, whatever that that is. But they all went, but both groups went through the same scanning of that prefrontal brain. Yes. And that was while they were, and it was a step-by-step process. So you, you can imagine this. Session one, you go in, they put these uh, these devices, just kind of like sensors on your forehead and you sit, they were staring at a, a white wall and then they brought in the animal and you were just looking at the animal and then the animal came next to you on the couch and just with, but the animal wasn't moving, just sitting there. And then the, and there were, I think two minute phases of all of this. And then the last phase you were able to, to pet the animal. So what they were looking at is the whole time evaluating, um, measuring oxygenated, deoxygenated, total hemoglobins, uh, oxygen saturation in the brain. So basically brain activity during this entire phase. And then they repeated that, you know, with the actual animals. And then they repeated it again with the, with the stuffed lion, with the the water bottle. I can only imagine though, that the group that had the actual animal, when the, when the dog, so they look at the dog first, then the dog comes up and lays against them. I mean, that dog must have wanted to be petted so bad. That must have, yeah, that must have been funny to watch. I think these were uh, trained animals. Well trained. Well trained, right? Well trained. It would not have been Winston, you know, but that's my dog. Winston would not have uh, cooperated with the study researchers. So at the end of the day, I mean, obviously we know that the real dog, it performed better when it, at least for us in our brain, right? Yes, um, far more prefrontal cortex activity, as you mentioned. You know that that part of the brain is plays an important role on how we deal with social and emotional situations and engagements. Um, and the interesting finding, Doctor Mike, the brain activity persisted after the activities with the real dog were completed. So there yes, were lasting. There was, there was lasting effects here, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I like this. Now I know mm-hmm. other animals are fine, but this was done on dog. I mean, with dogs. So right now, the only conclusion we can make is that dogs are the best pets, based on this study. Yes. But the the other conclusions that we and there's so many. When you really think about this, I think we do need a more research here to identify. Uh, you know, the stuffed animal, I just don't know. I mean, how can you compare that to a living being? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe ne- next it's dogs versus cats. 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. So that's in number one. Really enjoyed that. That was good. So go and pet a dog and it's just better brain function and you're, you're to feel more socially connected. And that's important for living forever-ish. Number two, again, these are the things you want to do. And this is about calcium intake. And it turns out that if you're getting enough calcium, which a lot of people aren't, that may be protective against kidney stone reoccurrence. Now, that may sound weird to some people, right? Because a lot of people think kidney stone, calcium, I'm getting too much. Now, there might be something there with that initial stone formation. But what we're talking about is when they clear the stone, making sure you still get enough calcium is important so you don't get reoccurrences. That's correct, right? That's that's what they were looking at. Yes, Dr. Mike. And I think um, I'm happy that this study took place. Again, this was August 2022, so hot off the press. And because people are confused about this, I just had a conversation with a dietitian last week who's, you know, she's seeing a, a patient who has recurring kidney stones and she's convinced that the lady or her patient doesn't need calcium. And I said, oh, yeah. I don't know about yeah. that. And I know how it can be confusing with some of the most common uh, types of stones being calcium oxalate, cal calcium phosphate. You know, these are common types. So in your mind, you would think, uh, no brainer. If yeah. these stones are made of calcium, I need to avoid calcium. Yeah, but and we need to clear this up because it's not the it's the it's not the calcium. It's the form of the calcium that is that is making the the urinary system acidic, and that's where you get the problem and stone formation. Another classic stone is the uric acid stone. Right again, it's the acidic environment. Right, that is that is forming those stones. So there are other forms of calcium, very common forms in nature and supplements that actually can, can um, bring up that um, acidity, make it more alkaline. And I think that that's what this was about. And that's where people I get think they, they get confused. Well, yeah, well, in this study, it was more of just an association study. So obviously, we there is no direct intervention um, but it was the, the, the researchers enrolled 411 individuals who were symptomatic kidney stone formers. You know, some people are just formers. And then 384 control patients who did not have the condition and then followed them for a median of, of 4.1 years. Right. And at the beginning of the, the study, they were provided or they were given a food frequency questionnaire. So, of course, they're just looking at the diet yeah. uh, in the individuals to, to try to figure out from a dietary perspective what's causing, are there differences in the people who are forming the stones and the people who are not? And right, right. try to identify some common, you know, a factor that could be related to maybe the ones who were not forming the stones. What, what is it about those, right. their diets? Um, and so the, the researchers found a recurrence of kidney stone symptoms was experienced by 73 of the stone formers and they adjusted for 
fluid intake, energy intake, uh, weight, as well as non-dietary risk factors. And once they adjusted for all of those risk factors, the, the one thing that stood out was lower dietary calcium remained a significant predictor of recurrent symptoms. And that's because most of these formers, right, these stone formers, pro were probably told by their nutritionists and their medical doctors to avoid calcium because no one's really understanding it's it's the pH that, that has probably uh, the greatest impact on whether you form a, a stone or not. Now, listen, this is still it's small. I mean, you're talking about 73 people out of the whole group that reoccurred. And um, I mean, obviously, these are questionnaires. We, we always we're always a little suspect, right, of, of questionnaires. But it is interesting. And I think it just to me as a clinician, it just shows that there's still a lot of misunderstanding of why why stones form. And if calcium is really one of those triggers of that. And in my opinion, it's more about the acidity of your system that's going to cause the stone. Yeah, potentially, you know, the other thought is the. Um, if, if you don't have enough calcium, then the body's going to pull that calcium from the bones, from the reserve. And maybe that's what's kind of getting some of that calcium into the soft tissue as well. And, and as well as um, maybe related to the stone formation. Interesting thought there. And here's, here's another thought I want to add to that. It, is it when, when you have the calcium being pulled out of the bone in, in a disproportionate way, what forms are those calcium? Do they tend to be more of the oh. oxalate forms and stuff like that? And that they are more acidic oh. and that's what's good. So is there something there? Oh. Essentially, but uh, I would have to say this now, this is just a plug for Life Extension, our sponsor, there we do have a kidney stone protocol and there I'm sure there are some answers there. Life yeah, check that out. yeah, yeah. So we and I know you always suggest um, as the clinical nutritionist. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I get this right. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to get it right. Five, five. Wait, a thousand milligrams for men, twelve hundred milligrams for women a day. Yes. Or or, yes. Or, that, well, that's the RDA. Oh, okay. But you, you actually, I think, actually, just put it all in. You, you basically say twelve hundred milligrams or so. Yes, from both diet and supplement. Yeah, diet have, and supplement. Yes, you have to add mm -hmm. those together. So make sure you're getting enough calcium. Uh, listen, you don't want stones if you want to live forever rich because they're going to knock you out. <laughs> you're not going to be very vibrant if you're dealing with they stones. They are debilitating <laughs> and, and very painful. Yeah. I've never experienced them before. Thank God. I don't know if you have crystal, but I do. I've had friends, patients. And more, I, it's definitely painful. All right, so in number three is cranberry supplement that boosts memory. I love this, Dr. Crystal, when we find another health benefit of a nutrient. Most people, when you we, when you say cranberry, they're, they're thinking urinary tract, mm -hmm. bladder, that kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. now there's evidence it helps with memory. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, well, first let's just talk about um, an interesting quote. If, if I'm allowed, Dr. Mike, from, <laughs> from the study introduction, to me, it was just eye-opening. And they state, the World Health Organization estimates by 2050, 22% of the world's population will be over uh, age 60. 
this is a product of increasing life expectancy, which should be viewed as an exceptional achievement, yet the improvement remains somewhat overshadowed by the absence of preserved quality of life. And so, Dr. Mike, when we talk about live forever-ish, yeah, it's yeah. about preserving the quality of life. And they go on to say, with age, the predominant risk factor for numerous chronic and degenerative neurological conditions, maintaining quality of life represent a significant global change. It is, it is a challenge because, it, you know, again, if you take the standard American, the standard European, especially out in the West, we can we already can help you live longer. The medicines, all that kind of stuff. But is it is it the strong, vibrant, healthy, longer life that we're talking about? And it's not. That's why we do this show. Right. And it's not just the in and out. All of our podcasts hopefully give people tools and information to, to really carry good health on for many, many years, you know. Right. So uh, the researchers um, wanted to see if uh, cranberry powder, basically a, a, a supplement containing powdered cranberries, if it was given for 12 weeks, would it improve uh, brain health, memory, uh, blood yeah. flow to the brain in older individuals? It, it- some people might hear this and they'd be like, well, how do they just pick that? Like they just, does someone one day go, hey, I'm going to study cranberries. Well, maybe <laughs> that may happen, but mostly, you know, cranberries, we've talked about this before, Dr. Crystal, cranberries have a nice bright color. Uh, that color is representative of a lot of good pigmented antioxidants, which are very important. We already know in brain health. Yes. And the, the researchers kind of talked about that in their introduction as well, how we know blueberries, for example, are great for brain health. Uh, and the cranberry, you just look at, look at that deep it, red it color. It looks healthy, right? Yes. <laughs> it does. But of course, to eat it, you got to add a lot of sugar to it. That's the problem with cranberry. I know, but they're rich in uh, polyphenol uh, antioxidants. So yeah, they kind of said, Hey, we don't see any research with cranberry. Everything's yeah. all about bladder health. So we're going to just take it there and see if you can, if you would receive benefits. So they enrolled uh, 60 participants between the ages of 50 to 80. And they were given a supplement that contained the equivalent of one cup of fresh cranberries or placebo daily for 12 weeks. I wonder, so one cup of fresh cranberries that you can't, I mean, cranberries are tough to eat. They're very tart. I wonder how they actually ate that. I don't know. It was, it was a supplement with the equivalent. Oh, the equivalent. Oh, that makes sense. I was going to say when you and I always talk about cranberries, we always say go to the supplement because the juices, you know, anything else you're going to try to use with cranberries, they do load it with sugar to offset that that bitterness. Yes. And what's nice, the supplement provided um, 281 milligrams of proanthocyanidins. That's one of those antioxidants. Those antioxidants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. Does It makes sense. It, it really does. Um, and I'm glad to see, you know, when, when you take a nutrient and you take, you look at its different antioxidant, you know, profile, you, it's impressive to see all the different health benefits that are coming out of it. Yes. And one other note, the participants were healthy 
aging individuals. So these were not individuals with dementia or any type of cognitive impairment, um, but they assessed blood chemistry, cognitive function, um, and this was uh, conducted before and after the treatment period. And the participants who received the supplements showed improved episodic memory performance and neuronal functioning compared to placebo. Sounds good. So get some cranberries in your system if you want to live forever-ish. Now let's go to our out. This is what we don't want. This is what you want to avoid. And this one is colorectal cancer. Um, Obviously, this is significant. It's one of the number one uh, uh, cancers that causes death in Americans. That's why you should be getting your colonoscopies when you hit 50 or so. Um, I mean, very Im- Im- important. And I think everybody understands that. But uh, so we so we know right there it's an out. Right. And, and we so you don't want it. But we, we want to show that there's something positive happening. Right. And that's with nutrients specific, specifically folate. Folate has been in so um, folate intake has been associated with a lower risk of colon. Uh, colorectal cancer. So tell us a little bit about what was just published last year in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Yes, this was based on data collected from more than 85,000 individuals who participated in the nurses health study. And there are lots of kind of sub studies that's coming out of this population. It's a huge umbrella study, right? Yes. And there's all these sub analysis from that. Mm hmm. Um, and so in this study, folate intake was assessed using dietary questionnaires with follow-up lasting from 1980 to 2016. Well, That's what's nice about these you know, big population studies, especially wow. when we know that there are detailed questionnaires uh, looking at lifestyle factors, medical history is conducted every two years with these huge population uh, yeah. analysis. And the longer it goes and they collect this data and do the analysis, it just adds more credibility to the to the to the to the association that they're concluding. So so in this case, folate reducing risk of colorectal cancer, the fact that it was such a long study, again, it's just an association. More more research is needed, but you could consider it a strong association because it was so long in this period. Yes. Right. So greater folate intake 12 to 24 years before diagnosis was associated with a 7 to about 17 percent lower risk. And then if you 16 to 20 years before diagnosis of intake of folic acid, let me just back up to make sure that's clear. Greater intake of folic acid 16 to 20 years before diagnosis was associated with a 9% reduced risk. Now, there are a couple of things that I think about here, Dr. Mike. One is folate and folic acid was associated with reduced risk. And we know that's really controversial in the nutrition field. It is. It is because there are chemo drugs and stuff that actually are anti-folates and stuff, right? Right. And I know there's the controversy in the nutrition world as well, right? There is. But Dr. Mike, I think that's why this study is so important because there is this idea that folic or particular folic acid is harmful. 
And I'm sure that's why the researchers specifically wanted to kind of pull out this nutrient to say, okay, in this large group of women over all of these years, let's see if there was a, a difference in uh, colorectal cancer diagnosis based on this particular dietary factor. Yeah, yeah, and and then and then for those like in the in the clinical world and in, in oncology, um, just so you understand, you know, when you do have a cancer that is formed, um, some of those cancers based on their genetics, uh, they use folate pathways to help grow, and they do it more so than a healthy cell. So these anti-folate chemo drugs are really targeting cells that have revved up those folate pathways beyond what a healthy cell uses. So it, so again, just because there's anti-folate chemo drugs, it doesn't mean folic acid or, an, or any of its forms causes the cancer. It just simply means those cancer cells that have already developed are using those folate pathways more and we're just, we're just shutting those pathways down. Yes. Um, and, and so ultimately the researchers said, there was no evidence that high folate intake in the post fortification period, meaning, you know, after we yep. started fortifying everything with folic everything. acid, <laughs> uh, was related to an increase in, is, in awesome. risk in the U.S. Yeah. population. I like that. So, um, and I like the way we took an out, like we don't want this cancer, like we don't want any cancer, but, you know, colorectal cancer has a, it's, it's you know, if it's if it's diagnosed in advanced stages, Doctor Crystal, it, it's it's hard to beat, you know, and and so that's that's definitely not going to help you live forever ish. Uh, but then we come around, we say, but here's here's a way that you can give yourself a chance of decreased risk. And again, it goes back to nutrition, doesn't it? Yes. So often, everything we talk about goes back to simple things, Doctor Crystal. Simple nutrition and simple activity. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, there you go. That's your three ins and an out for living forever-ish. Again, hopefully this kind of information helps you to achieve your goal of a long, strong, vibrant life. Uh, and again, that's why that's really why we do this show. And it's why I know I do. And I think Dr. Crystal focuses so much on nutrition and, and lifestyle things because that's we want to do that. We want to live forever-ish. That's right. At the end of the day. Hey, don't forget at liveforeverish.com, there's a whole bunch of other episodes you can download. When you do that, please like, share, and comment, and subscribe so you never miss a show. Now, we call it the one-two punch. First thing you want to go in there, there you go. She's punching now. Um, put in your email address, and that way you can join the family of Live Foreverish. And then right there, you can click whatever whatever area, or what do they call them? Whatever app you like to use to listen uh, to your, your podcast, you can just click it right there. It's the one-two punch at liveforeverish.com. I'm Dr. Mike. Thanks for listening.